Part One of Biltmore Oswald, The Diary of a Hapless Recruit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nigel Boydell. Biltmore Oswald, The Diary of a Hapless Recruit by J. Thorne Smith. Part 1 February 23rd And what? asked the enlisting officer, regarding me as if I had insulted him, his family and his livestock, leads you to believe that you are remotely qualified to join the Navy. At this I almost dropped my cane, which, in the stress of my patriotic preoccupation, I had forgotten to leave home. Nothing, I replied, making a hasty calculation of my numerous useless accomplishments. Nothing at all, sir, that is, nothing to speak of. Of course I've passed a couple of seasons at Bar Harbour, perhaps that— Bar Harbour? exploded the officer. Bar, 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 damn it! he broke off. I'm bleating! Yes, sir, said I with becoming humility. His hostility increased. Do you enlist for foreign service? he snapped. Sure, I replied. It will all be foreign to me. The long line of expectant recruits began to close in upon us until a thirsty, ingratiating semicircle was formed around the officer's desk. Upon the multitude he glared bitterly. Orderly, why can't you keep this line in some sort of shape? Yes, give the old tosh some air, breathed a worthy in my ear as he retreated to his proper place. "'What did you do at Bar Harbour?' asked the officer, fixing me with a gaze. "'Oh,' I replied easily, "'I occasionally yachted.' "'On what kind of boat?' he urged. "'Now, for the life of me, sir, I can't quite recall,' I replied. "'It was a splendid boat, though, a perfect beauty, handsomely fitted up and all. I think they called her the Black Wing.' These few little remarks seemed to leave the officer flat. He regarded me with a pitiful expression. There was pain in his eyes. "'You mean to say,' he whispered, "'that you don't know what kind of boat it was?' "'Unfortunately, no, sir,' I replied, feeling really sorry for the wounded man. "'Do you recall what was the nature of your act? Activities aboard this mysterious craft, he continued. Oh, indeed I do, sir, I replied. I tended the jib-sheet. Ah, said he thoughtfully, sort of specialised on the jib-sheet. That's it, sir, said I, feeling things taking a turn for the better. I specialised on the jib-sheet. What did you do to this jib-sheet, he continued. I clued it, said I promptly, dimly recalling the impassioned instructions an enthusiastic friend of mine had shunted at me throughout the course of one long, hot, horrible, confused afternoon of the past summer, my first and, as I had hoped at the time, final sailing experience. The officer seemed to be lost in reflection. He was probably weighing my last answer. Then, with a heavy sigh, he took my paper and wrote something mysterious upon it. "'I'm going to make an experiment of you,' 
he said, holding the paper to me. You are going to be sort of a test case. You're the worst applicant I have ever had. If the Navy can make a sailor out of you, it can make a sailor out of anybody. He paused for a moment, then added emphatically, Without exception. Thank you, sir, I replied humbly. Report here, Monday, for physical examination, he continued, waving my thanks aside, and now go away. I accordingly went, but as I did so I fancied I caught the reflection of a smile lurking guiltily under his moustache. It was the sort of smile, I imagined at the time, that might flicker across the grim visage of a lion in the act of anticipating an approaching trip to a prosperous native village. February 25th I never fully appreciated what a truly democratic nation the United States was until I beheld it naked, that is, until I beheld a number of her sons in that condition. Nakedness is the most democratic of all institutions. Knock knees, warts and chilblains, Bow legs, boils and bay windows are respecters of no caste or creed, but visitors all alike. These profound reflections came to me as I stood with a large gathering of my fellow creatures in the offices of the physical examiner. Never have I seen a more unpromising candidate in all my past experience, said the doctor moodily when I presented myself before him, and thereupon he proceeded to punch me in the ribs with a vigour that seemed to be more personal than professional. When thoroughly exhausted from this, he gave up and led me to the eye-charts, which I read with infinite ease, through long practice in following the World Series in front of newspaper buildings. "'Eyes all right,' he said in a disappointed voice. "'It must be your feet.' These proved to be faultless, as were my ears and teeth. "'You baffle me,' said the doctor at last, thoroughly discouraged. "'Apparently you are sound all over, yet, looking at you, I fail to see how it is possible.' I wondered vaguely if he was paid by the rejection. Then, for no particular reason, he suddenly tired of me and left me with all of my golden youth and glory standing unnoticed in a corner. From here I observed an applicant being put through his ear test. This game is played as follows. A hospital apprentice thrusts one finger into the victim's ear, while the doctor hurries down to the end of the room and whispers tragically words that the applicant must repeat. It's a good game, but this fellow I was watching, evidently, didn't know the rules, and he was taking no chances. Now repeat what I say, said the doctor. Now repeat what I say, quoted the recruit. No, no, not now, cried the doctor. Wait till I whisper. No, no, not now. Wait till I whisper, answered the recruit, faithfully accurate. Wait till I whisper, you blockhead, shouted the doctor. "'Wait till I whisper, you blockhead!' shouted the recruit with equal heat. "'Oh, God!' cried the doctor despairingly. "'Oh, God!' repeated the recruit in mournful voice. This little drama of cross-purposes might have continued indefinitely, 
had not the hospital apprentice begun to punch the guy in the ribs, shouting as he did so, "'Wait a minute, can't you?' at which the recruit, a great hulk of a fellow, delivered the hospital apprentice a resounding blow in the stomach and turned indignantly to the doctor. "'That man's interfering,' he said in an injured voice. "'Now that ain't fair, is it, Doc?' "'You pass,' said the doctor briefly, producing his handkerchief and mopping his brow. "'Well, what are you standing around for?' he said a moment later, spying me in the corner. "'Oh, doctor!' I cried, delighted. "'I thought you'd forgotten me.' "'No,' said the doctor. "'I'll never forget you. You pass. Take your papers and clear out.' I can now feel, with a certain degree of security, that I am in the Navy. February 26th I brought the news to my mother today, and she took it like a little gentleman, only crying on twelve different occasions. I had estimated it much higher than that. After dinner she read me a list of the things I was to take with me to camp among which were several sort of life preservers, an electric bed warmer, and a pair of dancing pumps. "'Why not include spurs?' I asked, referring to the pumps. "'I'd look very crisp in spurs, and they would help me in climbing the rigging.' "'But some officers might ask you to dance,' protested Mother. "'Mother,' I replied firmly, "'I have decided to decline all social engagement during my first weeks in camp.' You can send the pumps when I write for them. A card came today ordering me to report on March the 1st. Consequently, I am not quite myself. February 27th Mother hurried into my room this morning and started to pack my trunk. She'd gotten five sweaters, three helmets and two dozen pairs of socks into it before I could stop her. When I explained to her that I wasn't going to take a trunk, she almost broke down. "'But at least,' she said, brightening up, "'I can go along with you and see that you are nice and comfortable in your room. "'You seem to think that I am going to some swell boarding school, mother,' I replied from the bed. "'You see, we don't have rooms to ourselves. I understand that we sleep in bays.' "'Don't jest!' cried mother. "'It's too horrible!' Then I explained to her that a bay was a compartment of a barracks in which eight human beings and one petty officer, not quite so human, were supposed to dwell in intimacy and, as far as possible, concord. This distressed poor mother dreadfully. "'But what are you going to take?' she cried. "'I'm going to take a nap,' said I, turning over on my pillow. "'It will be the last one in a bed for a long, long time.' At this my mother stuffed a pair of socks in her mouth, and left the room hastily. Polly came in tonight, and I kissed her on and off throughout the evening on the strength of my departure. This infuriated father, but mother thought it was very pretty. However, before going to bed, he gave me a handsome wristwatch, and grandfather, pointing to his leg, said, Remember the Mexican War, my boy? I fought and bled honourably in that war, by God, sir! I know for a fact that the dear old gentleman has never been further west than the Mississippi River. February 28th, on the train. I have just gone through my suitcase and taken out some of Mother's last little gifts, such as toilet water, a padded coat hanger, one hot water bottle, some cough syrup, 
two pairs of ear-bobs, a paper vest, and a blue polka-dotted silk muffler. She put them in when I wasn't looking. I have hidden them under the seat. May the Lord forgive me for a faithless son. The departure was moist, but I managed to swim through. I am too excited to read the paper, and too rattle-brained to think except in terrified snatches. I wonder if I look different. People seem to be regarding me sympathetically. I recognised two faces on the train. One belonged to Tony, the iceman on our block. The other belongs to one named Tim, a barkeep, if I recall rightly, in a hotel I have frequently graced with my presence. I hope their past friendship was not due to professional reasons. It would be nice to talk over old times with them in camp, for I have frequently met the one in the morning after coming home from the other. March the 1st Subjected myself to the intimate scrutiny of another doctor this morning, I used my very best Turkish bath manners. They failed to impress him. Hospital apprentice treated me to a shot of Pelham Hop. It is taken in the customary manner through the arm. Very stimulating. A large sailor held me by the hand for fully fifteen minutes. Very embarrassing. He made pictures of my fingers and completely demolished my manicure. From there I passed on to another room. Here a number of men threw clothes at me from all directions. The man with the shoes was a splendid shot. I am now a sailor, at least superficially. My trousers were built for Charlie Chaplin. I feel like a masquerade. A gang of recruits shouted, Twenty-one days! at me as I was being led to mess hall number one. The poor simps had just come in the day before and had not even washed their leggings yet. I shall shout at other recruits tomorrow, though the same thing that they shouted at me today. Our P.O. is a very terrifying character. He is a stern but just man, I take it. He can tie knots and box the compass and say, Pipe down, and everything. Gee, it must be nice to be a real sailor. Fell out of my hammock last night, and momentarily interrupted the snoring contest holding sway. I was told to pipe down in Irish, Yiddish, Third Avenue and Bronx. This, I thought, was adding insult to injury, but could not make anyone take the same view of it. I hope the thing does not become a habit with me. I form habits so readily. In connection with snoring, I have written the following song, which I am going to send home to Polly. I wrote it in the YMCA hut this afternoon, while crouching between the feet of two embattled checkers players. I am going to call it The Rhyme of the Snoring Sailor. It goes like this. The mother thinks of a sailor's son that's clutched in the arms of war, but mother should listen as I have done to the same little innocent sailor's son sprawled in his hammock and snore. Oh, the sailor man is a rugged man, the master of wind and wave, and poets sing till the tea-rooms ring of his picturesque deep-sea grave, and they likewise rise of the storm at night when the numerous north winds roar. But more profound is the dismal sound of a sea-going sailor's snore. Oh, mother's knit for the sailor's son, socks for the nautical toes, but mother should listen to the frightful noise made by their innocent sailor boys, by the wind they blow through their nose. Oh, life at sea is wild and free, and greatly to be admired. 
but I will sleep both sound and deep at night when I'm feeling tired. So here we go with the yo-ho-ho while the waves and the tempest soar. An artist can paint as shrew as a saint, but not camouflage on a snore. Oh, mothers, write to your sons at sea, write to them, I implore. A letter as earnest as it can be, containing a delicate motherly plea, a plea for them not to snore. Oh, I take much pride in my trousers wide, the ladies all think them sweet. And I must admit that I love to sit in a chair and relieve my feet. A vast belay, and we're bound away with our hearts lashed fast to the fore. But when mermaids sleep in their bowers deep, do you think that the sweet things snore? Our company commander spoke to us this morning in no uncertain terms. He seems to be such a serious man. There is a peculiar quality in his voice, not unlike the tone of a French 75mm gun. You can easily hear everything he says, miles away. We rested this afternoon. March the 3rd, Sunday, a day of rest, for which I gave, in the words of our indefatigable chaplain, three good rollicking cheers. Some folks are coming up to see me this afternoon. I hear I must moo through the fence at them like a cow. Later. The folks have just left. Mother kept screaming through the wire about my underwear. She seems to have it on her brain. There were several young girls standing right next to her. I really felt I was no longer a bachelor. Why do mothers lay such tremendous stress on underwear? They seem to believe that a son's sole duty to his parents consists in publicly announcing that he is clad in winter flannels. Polly drove up for a moment with Joe Henderson. I hope the draft gets hold of that bird. They were going to have tea at the Baltimore when they got back to the city. I almost bit the end off a sentry's bayonet when I heard this woeful piece of news. Liberty looks a long way off. I made an attempt to write some letters in the YMCA this evening, but gave up before the combined assault of a phonograph, a piano, and a flanking detachment of checker players. Several benches fell on me, and I went to the mat feeling very sorry for myself. March the 4th The morning broke badly. I lashed my hand to my hammock and was forced to call on the P.O. to extricate me. He remarked with ill-disguised bitterness that I could think of more ineffectual things to do than any rookie it had been his misfortune to meet. I told him that I didn't have to think of them, they just came naturally. Last night I was nearly frightened out of my hammock by awakening and gazing into the malevolent eye of my high-powered twin-six wristwatch. I thought for a moment that the Woolworth Tower had crawled into bed with me. It gave me such a start. I must get used to my wristwatch, also wearing a handkerchief up my sleeve. I feel like the sweet kid himself now. Drill all day. My belt fell off and tripped me up. Why do such things always happen to me? Somebody told us to do squads left, and it looked as if we were playing Ring Around Rosie. Then we performed a fiendish and complicated little quadrille called a company square. I found myself, much to my horror, on the inside of the contraption, walking directly behind the company commander. It was a very delicate situation for a while. I walked on my tiptoes so that he wouldn't hear me. Had he looked around, I know I'd have dropped my gun and lit out for home and mother. Forgot to take my hat off in the mess room. I was reminded, though, 
by several hundred thoughtful people. March 5th. Stood for half an hour in the mail line. Got one letter. A bill from a restaurant for $18 worth of past luncheons. I haven't the heart to write more. March 6th. Bag inspection. I almost put my eye out at right-hand salute. However, my bag looked very cute indeed, and although he didn't say anything, I feel sure the inspecting officer thought mine was the best. I had a beautiful embroidered handkerchief holder, prominently displayed, which I'm sure must have knocked him cold. He missed the dirty white, but I'll never be the same. Fire drill! My hammock came unlashed right in front of a CPO, and he asked me if I was going to sleep in it on the spot. It was a very inspiring scene. Particularly thrilling was the picture I caught of a very heavy sailor picking on a poor innocent-looking little fire extinguisher. He ran the thing right over my foot. I apologized as usual. I discovered that I had been putting harp instead of marling hitches in my hammock, but not before the inspecting officer did. He seemed very upset about it. When he asked me why I only put six hitches in my hammock instead of seven, I replied that my rope was short. His reply still burns in my memory. What eloquence! What earnestness! What a day! March 7th. Second jab tomorrow. I am too nervous to write today. More anon. End of part one.